Hello and welcome to The History of Now, a podcast run from the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. I'm Chris Clark, and this is the series of podcast conversations around the current COVID-19 crisis. We're talking to historians about how aspects of their research might relate or help to relate to or help to illuminate the current predicament we're facing with COVID-19. And my conversation partner today is Nuket Vardluk, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University and Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. She is an historian of the Ottoman Empire with a keen interest in disease, medicine, and other traditions of healing and also in public health. And she's the author of a book called Plague and Empire in the Early Modern Mediterranean World, The Ottoman Experience, 1347 to 1600. And that came out with Cambridge University Press in 2015. Uh, Nuket, do you see connections between your field of research as an historian and the current crisis, the politics of the current crisis? Uh, yes, first of all, uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, of course, I do very close connect. I see very close connections, especially in terms of uh, the time period that I was studying for for my book, um, the second pandemic, uh, second plague pandemic, starting with the mid 14th century and continuous outbreaks recurring throughout the late medieval and early modern period. Uh, we can think of that era as a new disease regime. Right, that lasted several centuries. And now thinking about our current situation, our current um, uh, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic can also be understood as the beginning, as the onset of a new disease regime, as we don't know how long uh, the pandemic will last, how long we'll uh, continue to feel its, its effects, its influences globally. So we might think of ourselves now standing in a position similar to, and of course, I'm not saying similar to in the sense of similarities, biological similarities between uh, plague and um, coronavirus, the COVID-19. They're not different. One is a bacterial infection, one is a viral infection. So I'm not trying to draw parallels in terms of the diseases themselves, but uh, trying to think of the beginning of a new disease, a new biological entity in our lives, and it's transforming our lives in deeply, deeply important uh, ways. Well, that's very interesting because, you know, there are there, there are clearly examples, and I, I want to come back to what you mean by a new regime of disease mm-hmm. in, the, in the Ottoman context, because I think that's a very interesting observation. And we heard um, in one of the other podcasts about the, the regime-like structures that emerge around disease containment in cities like Venice and mm-hmm. in the early in the early uh, well in the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those those are very important issues, and I want to uh, come back to them later. But there have been many sure. very very lethal epidemics, like for example the Spanish flu epidemic, which were very short and sharp. You mm-hmm. know, the Spanish flu epidemic came in 1918. I mean, there was a re- revisiting in the following year, but um, less less lethal. But And that was an incomparably more deadly disease. It killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it left a very short and sharp impact in the mm-hmm. historical record. The, the, the world economies or the, the economies we know something about seem to have recovered quite fast. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that you think this might be, uh, we might be in for the long haul with this disease as as Europeans and Ottomans were in the face of the plague, which kept coming back. 
Right. I mean, of course, I am not suggesting that we are going to see like a multi-century, you know, um, disease regime as is was <laughs> in the case. Of hopefully, hopefully not. But even if it's a decade now, it will probably, you know, have very profound consequences. Uh, but what I actually mean is thinking about the introduction of a new disease entity, a new pathogen to our you know, spectrum of, of, of germs are where we're exposed to, right? Mm -hmm. At the time the Black Death started, um, neither the European population nor uh, the population in the Ottoman Empire, no, just much less, you know, anywhere else in the world, that was an entirely new pathogen, right? I mean, we know that there is the first plague pandemic and that, that was not, um, the, the, the Black Death was not entirely the first time there was an outbreak of epidemic or pandemic or plague in world history, but the strain of the bacterium that is responsible, that was responsible for causing the Black Death at the time was a new strain. So mm. in that sense, that branch of the bacterium that was involved in causing the pandemic was new to the biology of the individuals at the time. And so, you know, it in like in every... Um, uh, let's think of the, the interaction between, you know, populations and pathogens as a form of um, dance, perhaps, right? So yes. just, it's a way of learning to live with each other. So in that sense, I look at the long history of the second pandemic of plague, again, starting with the Black Death and continuing for several centuries, as part of this adjustment of, like, learning to live with a disease, right? That's so I'm not suggesting that it's going to be exactly the same. Obviously, you know, I'm not comparing 14th century society to our 21st century society, but I'm just, you know, trying to think of what it means to learn how to live with a new disease. Fascinating. Um, and how, what kind of biological changes and what kind of social changes will it involve? And also on the part of the bacterium or the virus, there is going to be perhaps some changes that will involve the, its part of doing, you know, adjust adjustment. Yes. And of course, there may be other coronaviruses right. to come. I mean, right. this is not right. the only one we've got to know. Yeah. Um, this is just an unusually effective one, but there are doubt, doubtless there are, it, it has relatives we, we haven't yet made the yeah. acquaintance of. But right. um, coming back to the um, to, to the to this question, the, the point you make about the very sustained engagement with or encounter with disease, mm -hmm. with the plague in the Ottoman uh, world, um, it, it becomes clear from your book that this this is a it lasts over several centuries. And can you give us a sense? Is it just plague, or is plague uh, coming in combination with other diseases? And um, what kind of cyclical intervals are we talking about? And what sorts of mortalities? Right. Uh, first of all, I mean, we can never say it's only plague. There was, you know, no other disease involved. We were not, I mean, that's, <clears throat> it would not be correct to say that. Obviously, there are other epidemic diseases involved, and it's not only plague. Uh, but that said, I think um, plague is one of the major, uh, most important killers, Mm. Uh, especially in the late medieval, uh, medieval and early modern period. So uh, when we think of the high mortality that plague presents, I think it's really one of the major forces, one of the major uh, players, biologically speaking, uh, as a pathogen in comparison to other diseases. So it it has a very important place um, in comparison to, to other diseases. But at the same time, I think the early modern period was also a time in which we see um, either new disease entities being presented to the Mediterranean world or old diseases taking a more virulent, virulent form. 
Mm. And, you know, there's some discussion about this among the paleogeneticists, but it seems like uh, smallpox became more virulent, for instance, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Again, as I said, some of this is, is still uh, being debated. But there is evidence that as, you know, of course, we know of the, the Colombian exchange between the old world and new world. So diseases, disease pathogens are becoming either circulating faster in the early modern period or becoming more virulent. virulent. So it is an important time period to think about what is going on in the world, biologically speaking, ecologically speaking, that is creating this new um, new formations. And in a way, I think we can also think of our present uh, time period as, you know, a time of emerging and re-emerging uh, infectious diseases, right? Again, I don't want to just draw, you know, unnecessary comparisons, but just trying to contextualize what we're going through as, as a time of accelerated um, ecological and biological uh, connection between different parts of the world, right? So, I mean, the classic story was that, you know, um, with the antibiotics, with the biological, microbiological revolution, that it was the era of the end of infectious diseases, right? Toward the, in the second part of the uh, 20th century, there was this sense of triumph, like, you know, we are <laughs> over infectious diseases. But I mean, of course, we saw, you know, late 20th century, just, you know, obviously that was not true with AIDS, HIV, and then more recently with uh, SARS, Ebola, and other infectious diseases, emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. We know that now this is not the case so new diseases are emerging and of course this is this is one of them absolutely fascinating but of course if we if, if, thinking now about plague even mm -hmm. plague can be disaggregated into different forms can't it i mean right. there's bubonic and pneumonic and presume and the more deadly form of plague is a person-to-person -person contagion isn't it it doesn't require uh, animal or insect vectors Right. So, uh, in fact, it's all the same bacterium. So it's uh, Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes plague. In fact, uh, the different forms of plague, it can be a little misleading. So let me try to clarify that, you know, that might be confusing uh, for some of the listeners, at least. So, in fact, under normal circumstances, the bacterium Yersinia pestis causes bubonic plague. Bubonic mm. form is the default form of the disease, right? Yeah. In some cases, it can cause a secondary infection when it reaches the lungs and then it can produce a pneumonic plague and then can be transmitted from person to person. But under normal circumstances, we expect bubonic form as being the default form of the disease. Uh, in its bubonic form, the disease is not um, spread from person to person. It's no. only with the ectoparasites, that is to say, fleas and lice, um, you know, uh, transmitting the bacterium from one person to another. Uh, but in the pneumonic form, it can be airborne, air airborne and transmitted uh, via droplets. Fascinating. Now, yeah. you, you, one of the central arguments of your, um, of your book, Plague and Empire, and it's, it's there in the title, really, is, <laughs> is that there is a nexus between empire and disease, that empires have a special kind of relationship with disease, right. um, and that they shape the, 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 the well, both, both in the sense of the way they handle and respond to diseases, and also in the kinds of, you know, the kinds of trajectories that they facilitate for disease. Um, can you tell us something about that? What is that relationship between empire and disease? Right. So um, I'll 
try to tell you about that uh, connection between empire and disease, and we'll also address the question of uh, periodization of plague, that, you know, how frequent and uh, were the intervals between outbreaks that you asked before, so I think they are uh, connected. So, uh, yeah, obviously I'm making, you know, uh, trying to make an important argument there, trying to look at the relationship between disease and empire, right, uh, and plague and empire. So in the sense that looking at how, you know, a society changes a disease and how a disease changes society. So looking at uh, that kind of, you know, uh, mutual uh, interaction between the two. And my argument has very much to do with understanding how the empire as a nexus of the different types of biological, economic, social, demographic, cultural connections um, that, you know, combine all these different types of interactions and um, uh, put the different ecological zones of, 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 of ecological geographic zones under the control of uh, one centralized empire and how this affects the distribution of disease and uh, not only its distribution but how uh, frequently it occurs. So, and that takes me to the question of periodization. So what I see in um, Ottoman sources in fact, you know, when I started doing my research, I was trying to understand what European uh, historians have, you know, written in terms of how often plague outbreaks ha happened in the late medieval and early modern period. So the general consensus was that plagues occurred every about every 10 years or so. Right. So yeah. this is just, you know, pretty much a very kind of rough uh, calculation average that uh, kind of gives us the picture from anywhere from the second half of the 14th century to, uh, let's say, mid 16th century or so for about, you know, to um, um, 200 years or so. So about 10 years. And uh, then I look back at Ottoman sources. I was trying to calculate how often plague was was taking place. And what I noticed was that the uh, the intervals between each outbreak was becoming smaller and smaller in time, right? Especially mm. as it uh, as I moved to the 15th and 16th centuries. So yes, in the 14th century and up to the middle of 15th century or so, it was uh, similar to what was happening in Europe. But starting in the late 15th and early 16th century, I realized in the Ottoman case, outbreaks were happening more frequently. So that actually was, you know, one of the initial questions got that, you know, made me uh, look for an answer of, you know, why is this happening? Why is plague uh, is more more widespread? So, it, you know, it's seen in more locations. And why is it more uh, frequent? And so in looking for an answer to that question, I came to realize that it had something to do with how the, you know, it's, the empire was trying to establish connections between different locations. And also, let's try to underline the fact that the Ottoman Empire, this was just the time period when the Ottoman Empire was expanding, right? Mm, yes. so it was, you know, conquering new territories and trying to establish new uh, networks of, you know, trade well, and they were, the, they, were the, they were at the gates of Vienna. Well, yes. <laughs> so, but I mean, that's actually important because, you know, again, you know, for from the perspective of, you know, Ottomanists, that is a story that is read mostly, you know, from a political and military perspective. Yes. But there's got to be an ecological and biological story that comes with it, right? I mean, it's not only just expansion of 
the boundaries of an empire as a political entity, but we also need to think about like, you know, all the different areas that are that were not connected to each other before are now being connected under a, a wider network of an empire. And what does this mean for each location? How does this, you know, affect the life of, of people, the animals, the animal, the, the nature, you know, circulation of goods back and forth. And so perhaps, you know, they are now better connected to um, parts of the world that they were not previously connected. Maybe they are exposed to new germs, they're exposed to new animals. So in that sense, I was trying to understand how the empire as kind of like a superstructure that established or facilitated contact between these these uh, different locations, you know, how this was um, connected to disease. But there's also one more important, uh, I think, theme that needs to be integrated to this discussion of expansion of the empire and its uh, uh, urbanization. So um, starting in the 16th century, especially, Ottoman Empire is now was in the process of becoming a more urban empire. So the number of individuals who lived in the cities expanded. Yes. And overall, urban population increased much more quickly than rural population. At the same time, uh, 15th, well, I mean, 14th and 15th and the 16th century were also part of this process of settling down nomadic and semi-nomadic tribes and ah, yes. making them sedentary. So I think in the long scheme of things, we can look at the long 16th century as a time in which city population basically increased. And um, smaller, you know, villages emerging into towns, mid-sized towns becoming cities and cities becoming bigger cities. And of course, you know, it is obviously very important to think of the role of Istanbul, which I, you know, talk plenty in my yeah. book in, 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 in Plague, uh, in the context of Plague, because, you know, um, I think throughout the early modern period, especially up to the 17th and almost the 18th century, Istanbul is one of the largest uh, centers, um, you know, urban centers in the Mediterranean world. And it is uh, very well connected to not only through maritime networks, but also overland connections in Anatolia, Balkans, Black Sea region, and its hinterland, you know, connecting it to, you know, all the way to Central Asia. Yes. And also in the south, like Mediterranean, and, you and know, you cities. Is, is, is plague um, principally an urban problem then? Cities are particularly well, favorable to the spreading of plague, is that right? Because they're so densely right. inhabited. Well, okay, uh, let's just say, first of all, that cities obviously are very important because whenever you have a certain um, density of population in any given area, it's you're more likely to have epidemic diseases. I mean, that's yeah. just, you know, the basic rule of epidemiology. There's a threshold and like beyond that threshold, you are going to have, um, the epidemic diseases. But this does not mean that only cities were affected or only they were more, more affected, right? We know that the cities were affected, but at the same time, we have evidence that very small uh, urban locations were also suffered very heavy losses, mm. which is actually a little counterintuitive when you think about it, because like we tend to associate cities and population density more with epidemic diseases, right? And perhaps we want to think of the countryside as being safe at times of disease, and it was not the case. And this is kind of like an, I think, a little underexplored in terms of demographic history mm, and connections absolutely. with disease. But uh, yes, I mean, I was, you know, I, I spent almost two years uh, 
carrying out uh, research in the Ottoman archives and all the documents that I was, you know, looking at from remote provinces and just very small villages and uh, in those remote locations reported very heavy losses. Again, I don't have statistical information, most of this anecdotal, but I think it was not only big cities that suffered. That just, you know, that's the only thing I wanted to... Fascinating. Um, that that may, means, of course, there was no escape. Right. In, today, in the context of today's COVID-19 crisis, mm. you know, we have on the one hand um, the medical expertise we associate with, you know, famous public faces in the United States, um, Dr. Fauci would be an ex example. Um, and on the other hand, we have, um, we have you know, advice from, from none other than um, President uh, Donald Trump himself, along the lines that, or reflections at least, on the possibility that it might um, be an option to treat this disease by injecting people with, um, with um, antiseptic. Not, by the way, advice that anybody's advised to actually take. Um, but, the point is, please don't do this at home. But the point is that, <laughs> that um, there are different kinds of knowledge of this disease. There are formal and informal knowledges, uh, and we've seen that now. We've seen that now, and, and it's often been apparent in earlier epidemics as well. And I was wondering if you find that in your field of research um, that there are official and unofficial ways of knowing about this disease. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about the pre-modern period. We're not. Yeah, we were talking about like different types of knowledge circulating freely in the society. And uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I do come up with some kind of like, you know, typology of knowledge and the, the circles that, you know, embrace the, those types of knowledge. But probably in reality, those were more fluid and circulating, you know, within society uh, probably more freely than just, you know, can be uh, categorized. But generally speaking, I think uh, we know that at least from the writings of, of religious scholars, the ulama uh, in the Ottoman Empire, there was a more or less... Um, a consensus, uh, or at least an emerging consensus in the 16th century about, you know, how plague should be understood according to uh, the Sunni interpretations of Islam, right? Uh, even though this does not mean that was the only type of, you know, religious interpretation of a plague, that we see the emergence of at least one consensus. But at the same time, we have the Sufi groups trying to kind of, you know, come up with their own version, right? We, at the same time, we have uh, lots of occult scientific and and magical practices and understanding of disease and, you know, especially using of, of, of prayers and magic, um, I mean, um, talismans and, and um, you know, astrological uh, knowledge comes into play in that context. So I think uh, overall we can say that, you know, there was a broad um, body of, of knowledge and not necessarily, you know, under like, exclusive uh, categories of knowing about the plague that just people just freely, you know, mix and matched. Uh, at least that's that's what I see um, in the sources. That's fascinating. I mean, I was very struck by how um, deeply you you how widely you use and deeply in the book you use you use religious sources. I mean, um, clearly that is there one of the great um, you know, treasuries of knowledge about the about disease. Right. <laughs> if I, may, I quickly yeah. add something. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, it's it's important to look at texts that define themselves as more like you know religious and kind of even that real distinction between religious and secular, not not little anachronistic. But uh, in any case, what I am trying to say is that you know, plague had not plague epidemics 
were not seen as a medical event, right? I mean, they were on their way of becoming medicalized. But yeah. because it was not seen entirely as a medical phenomenon, that's why you have these different types of expertise and different types of practices that are just, you know, circulating um, freely. So there is no one type of expertise, you know, claiming that, knowledge that of really So that's, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting, especially the, the, the notion which is new to me that um, it's not just different genres of knowledge. It's that the, the generic position of plague itself as a phenomenon, mm -hmm. its phenomenology mm -hmm. isn't yet secure. I mean, that's to say, isn't yet agreed. It's, it has an in, indeterminate position. And so it right. can be addressed from a lot of different generic perspectives. That's really, really interesting. Right. I mean, I think, uh, sorry to interrupt, but like I think toward the end of the 16th century, we see a push. A very strong push from the part of the the, the medical professionals that, that that they were claiming that they were at least trying to claim it as their area. So there is an attempt to make it more medical, uh, medicalized. But it was kind of like you know I find that process to do to to trace that process fascinating to see you know you can hear multiple voices and everyone's trying to make a claim over it, right? Absolutely. Well, I remember when I when I was an undergraduate reading. Um, about the efforts of the, the so-called learned doctors of Paris, who of course yeah. were all clergymen, <laughs> to understand the plague, and this largely involved astrology. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it was it wasn't clear what kind of event the plague was for for the for these Parisian doctors either. But um, it, so you say that by the end of that period you're looking at getting into the 16th century, um, there is the emergence of something that begins to look like a sort of professional mm -hmm. scientific right. knowledge. Right. I mean, well, uh, something that looks like it's right. Yeah, so, but it isn't yet that thing, but it's starting to look a bit like it. Absolutely. Um, now, what about official responses to contagious disease and to plague in particular? Um, we've spoken in this podcast um, series with um, uh, Jane Stevens Crawshaw and uh, John Henderson about the very elaborate measures um, undertaken by the, by the Sanita, the public health authorities in, in, in Venice and Florence, to handle plague outbreaks through quarantine, lockdowns, uh, isolation, and also the provision of food and so on for people who are stuck in households and, and deprived of their usual income. Um, is there anything like that in the Ottoman Empire? Right, but different sets of measures. Uh, in fact, um, so when we look at the Ottoman Empire, uh, we see the implementation of a public health system um, quite early on. Uh, I see the development of these, like you know, uh, intensive efforts to not to contain the disease, but try to provide basically cleaner environments for uh, the urban population. Again, I think I must underline that most of these measures uh, focus on the urban environment and especially the capital, Istanbul, even though other cities were also involved. This does not mean that there were no such efforts to provide you know, public health efforts in provinces and other cities, but uh, let's just say that these were more visible in big cities. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but to I, I'll talk a little bit about what measures were implemented and adopted um, to against you know against plague. But I think it's important to think about how plague was understood and or how people thought that it spread 
to be able to understand what these measures meant, right? Um, So because the dominant, you know, understanding that plague was caused by, and again, this is just, this goes back to way back in Galenic medicine and then Avicenna, it just, you know, uh, ancient Greco-Roman and Islamic uh, classical interpretation of disease, the miasma theory that yeah, the yeah. corruption of the air causing disease and all that. And again, this being the, the main etiological framework for understanding disease in Ottoman medical understanding and in fact, Ottoman knowledge about plague, this plays a very important role. So the general understanding is that you need to live in a place with clean air, clean water, but also clean souls, you know, uh, clean yeah, moral, yes. moral behavior. So that's yeah. something that is emphasized. This is the nexus so, between disease, can, the contagion in, in, of disease and also in, in moral contagion. Right, right. So again, for me, it really makes sense to think about the rationale of these uh, measures to be able to understand why they did the things they did. Um, so when I look at the measures, most of these really, you know, targeted the air, water, and just, you know, more clean morals, right? So they try to keep the um, the plague burials outside of cities. So we see the establishment of public cemeteries outside of city walls, right? That's one of the most important um, kind of developments related to plague. In fact, that became, uh, it was a practice that started with great plague epidemics, then later on became just standard practice for all burials, period. And um, so taking uh, uh, taking the dead bodies out of city walls and recording the number of deaths and then report, reporting the, the uh, death uh, tolls. At the same time, uh, we see that, you know, there was a greater effort for cleanliness, uh, you know, cleaning and paving the streets. And we see the businesses of such as uh, or slaughterhouses, the businesses that were believed to contaminate the air, right? They were moved, removed outside of city walls. And uh, also there was a greater effort to bring clean water to the cities. And if houses were found to contaminate city water, they were removed. So when we look at all these measures, oh, at the same time, like with respect to clean, clean um, morals, right? Uh, we see that some undesired groups in the population, especially some more marginal groups were um, basically, you know, banned and um, um, sent to exile. Um, most of the time, these were um, uh, immigrant workers, bachelors, uh, beggars, uh, prostitutes. Um, so, the, you know, again, just trying to keep these population out made it possible for them to imagine they lived in a clean society with with good morals right yeah. so uh yeah so, yeah so the, so these are efforts to to discipline the environment rather than mm-hmm. to discipline individuals right. and this is, this is one of the distinctions that's sometimes made in the history of epidemic medicine isn't it the between sanitationist solutions which you've been mm-hmm. talking and contagionist ones, which focus on stopping people from congregating in the same place, keeping them isolated and, and so on. D- is there any uh, evidence that the Ottomans also saw the necessity for anti-contagionist measures that targeted human movement? No, it's interesting. Actually, I mean, there was an ongoing discussion for several centuries in the Ottoman Empire and in the Islamic world in general about whether plague was uh, contagious or not, 
right? Whether yeah. there was human to human transmission or not. And um, there were two different camps, two different uh, arguments. So, of course, you know, you have the belief that it was contagious. Others said it was not contagious. But I think overall, uh, the emphasis was on sanitation, but not on um you know, uh, measures such as the quarantine to contain individuals or uh, limit their, their movement. That said, I mean, the Ottomans were, you know, very well familiar with the measures of uh, the Venetians and others uh, and how these, you know, quarantine measures were, were uh, implemented and performed. Um, so, but they did not, um, until the 19th century, they did not implement uh, a quarantine system. That is fascinating because, you know, there's the, 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 the claim is sometimes made that so-called authoritarian regimes uh, tend to adopt um, measures that target individual movement and, mm -hmm. um, and to, in the words, that intervene in civil society and in free individual freedoms and that um, liberal and commercial regimes or liberal and commercial political cultures adopt sanitationist ones which mm -hmm. try to discipline the environment but leave individuals free to move around. That's mm -hmm. interesting, but I think a lot of those theories um, don't take account of the Ottoman experience. I mean, one of the great, one of the right. you know, really important things about your book is the way that you integrate the, this this Ottoman history of the encounter with epidemic disease into a larger world history, and um, that's part of its great value. But now right. coming to the question of um, of um, the, we've talked about the official responses. What about individual experiences? The book is also very rich in accounts of you know children stricken by the plague messengers um janissary recruits um we see uh, we, we hear about mourning poems bereavement can you mm -hmm. tell us something about that what kinds of sources are there and what do they tell us about how people experience the plague not just those who not those necessarily those who are afflicted by it but mm -hmm. those who um who survived you know uh, those who, who who died right i mean uh unfortunately i must say that you know there is less of the kind of, you know, sources that you can tease out individual experiences, very difficult to find those in the sources. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. It's just that they're rare and, you know, um, more more difficult to, to, to find. So because, you know, the larger body of information that survived is from the archives and those are more about, you know, social and administrative measures and not uh, about individual experiences. That said, we still have some sources that we can uh, find some individuals' um, stories and stories of the experience of disease. Uh, in my research, I found it very um, useful to look at hagiographies. Uh -huh. um, and those came from um, uh, Sufi saints uh, because in um, some Sufi groups there was a belief that the Sufi master had powers to rule over the plague or govern uh, the disease, either in the form of um, protecting their community from the disease or inflicting disease on their opponents, right? Interestingly enough. Mm. Um, so uh, in, in those sources, it's possible to find some individual stories, but overall, I think, um, at least for the 14th and 15th centuries, this is, it's more difficult to find individual voices. That said, after the 16th century, they're more common, but I uh, did not include that time period in, in my book. No, oh, interesting. Okay, well, you, you know, one of the things where uh, that is happening now in our understanding of COVID nineteen is mm -hmm. that we've moved away from the sort of medical fascination with this virus towards uh, a deepening 
um, sense of apprehension about its economic and its socioeconomic effects. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, in, in your book, you do touch on this issue. You, I, I recall one passage where you um, talk about, um, you know, people who are anxious about the business that they've lost. These are people mm -hmm. who have beer shops in uh, in an Anatolian city called Bursa because nobody's mm -hmm. buying their beer anymore. Um, <laughs> so, you know, even then, of course, the, the, <laughs> the pubs or the cafes or whatever they were, the, you know, <laughs> had to shut down. And that always meant the loss of livelihoods. Right. Uh, people and of course in the state in those days did not intervene i suppose in the way that the current you know, the, the states in many parts of the world today are intervening to compensate mm. for that loss of income so did did the authorities in the ottoman empire reflect on or did anybody reflect on the economic effect of, of plague and how to deal with those right i mean there are plenty of uh, such documents in the ottoman archives most of the time you have either individuals or businesses appealing and petitioning the court uh, basically if they have you know suffered uh, losses in their businesses uh, as a result of plague and sometimes they're uh, being compensated for their losses uh, in most cases and at least in most examples that i've seen there is uh, an investigation about you know what was their business uh, potential if there were no plague and then right right uh, but most other sources uh, are about tax reliefs so I mean documents about tax relief mm. so um, well especially from the provinces and uh, these are you know sometimes about like you know remote provinces and smaller communities other other times ur urban uh, population but you know basically people cannot pay their taxes. And so in some cases, they either ask the tax to be postponed or just, you know, canceled or, you know, temporarily uh, recalculated. So there are a lot of those documents. But again, I think this is, you know, I think it's important to mention that these are basically short-term measures, right? Yeah, yeah. And whatever the government did to alleviate the, the, the um, economic uh, crisis in the short term, was um, nothing that could deal with the problem long, long term, right? I mean, when we think about like the demographic impact of plague and over long time cumulative life loss must have been really devastating for, for the empire. Absolutely, um, quite. And yet, and yet in, in, a, in an odd way, disease does not uh, occupy the kind of prominent place Right. In in, a, in in either in the great sort of syn synoptic historical narratives or in in contemporary historical memory of the past. And I'm thinking not just well, the plague, of course, has a special place. The Black Death has a sort of iconographic mm -hmm. to it. But um, you know, the, we, the 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 Spanish flu influence, the flu epidemic mm -hmm. we mentioned before, you know, scarcely mm -hmm. mentioned in general histories of the of the First World War, for example. Mm -hmm even American ones, where, or even though it killed twice as many Americans as the First World War did. So there's something about the way, about what we think history is that makes it hard to insert epidemic crises of this kind into it. Part, partly, I suppose, because they're not necessarily human in their origin. Um, and yet, as you point out, pointed out, the genesis of these epidemics is very human in the sense that they do result from disturbances, which are often mm -hmm. caused by political change. Right. Um, expansion of an empire, for example. Now, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Just uh, sorry to interrupt, but you know, at, at least for for Ottoman history, right? I mean, 
it's as if we're trying to understand the history of an empire as if people did not suffer and die from this like crisis that was affecting the society over multiple centuries and people were dying as a result of this and was still trying to read this history as if this not, not did not happen right i mean to me this is you know uh we really need to pay more attention to uh how people lived and died to be able to to you know reconstruct these narratives Absolutely. Well, I mean, thanks to books like yours, we're starting to do that. But it is astonishing that the work that it, it, it takes so much work to do that, um, that there, there is some sort of distortion in our awareness. And uh, I haven't really worked out what it is myself. But I think there's something interesting about the, the way our narratives are resistant to integrating these kinds of events. Mm-hmm. And it's very good, all the more valuable that, that work like yours is being done. Um, you, you, you speak in the book of a new politics of the body. Mm-hmm. and technologies of governance and, and surveillance and of course today um, there are voices raised uh, you know expressing concern about the possibility that the current COVID-19 crisis could serve as a kind of cover for authoritarian measures or the expansion of certain um, government prerogatives state prerogatives um, you know the observation has been made by many that this is precisely this is, is starting to happen in Hungary right now um, mm-hmm. do you think that, can you see trace something similar in the Ottoman Empire? Is there an impact on how government is done and what people think government is and what it's for? Is there an expansion of surveillance? Well, I absolutely think that there is a connection. In fact, I think I see the roots of, you know, what we understand in the modern definition of the state's biopower and its necropower as, you know, two important axes of the definition of modern state. These themes or these uh, phenomena, I think, you know, we can trace them back to the early modern period. In fact, um, I was a little frustrated when I started doing my research that these concepts were exclusively discussed in the context of modern um, Europe, basically. I was trying to understand how the early modern period contributed to formation of these concepts in the form of institutions and knowledge yeah. uh, formation. So, so in the case of the Ottoman Empire, I can see it very clearly how the body of the individual became something that was seen that uh, was brought under the control of the state. Right. And I think this is a very important um move toward the definition of an early modern state formation, right? Uh, Because the health of the individual before this time period was not something that was defined as if that belonged to the domain of the state. And now all of a sudden, like in the, at least, you know, in my sources, I see it sometime late 15th, early 16th century, more or less, right? So you see that how the state is kind of, you know, redefining its role as a mechanism, as a power that oversees the power of the health of individuals and being responsible for their bodies. For the first time, we see that important life events of that affected an individual had to be registered in the Qadi's office. These are judges' offices that report to the state, right? Disease, uh, any kind of important medical intervention, any surgery. But at the same time, death, birth, marriage, and all these, you know, important events marking the life of an individual, but also affecting their bodies. Um, The same can be said about death, necropower, right? Again, this is a concept that is discussed in the context of the modern state. But I can see how the state is making decisions about where individuals had to be buried, right? And again, these are 
in a way, breaking the communal ties of where individuals wanted to be buried. I mean, individuals wanted to be buried close to their loved ones, the families, and even the, the religious leaders or Sufi master that they felt emotionally and spiritually connected to. That's yeah. where they wanted to be in the afterlife. And yeah. instead, state is opening new uh, cemeteries and burying them. In a way, I think we can... You know, not to jump too much in time, but I mean, the whole notion of biopower and necropower, now we're seeing, you know, we're, we're, we see the enactment of these, you know, power in more like digital world, I think. Um, now our phones probably, you know, will be used for contact tracing and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, um, um, the communal uh, graveyards and whatnot. I mean, these are you know things that we see in the context of this epidemic, right? So absolutely. Um, I mean, look at look at the agonizing right. about what to do with people who are dying. Right. I mean, right. should their families be allowed to be with them? Right. Or should they be kept right. in isolation until they're actually deceased? Mm -hmm. You know, a decision which can wreak tremendous damage. You know, damage people permanently. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. talking about the people who who survive, not the people who die. I mean, right. in a way, they, they don't care once they're dead. But the ones who survive can be wounded in very deep ways by the by being deprived of the of, of the opportunity to be with their loved ones while they're dying. Mm -hmm. um, so these are still, um, you know, issues around the question of the state and bi the state's biopower, the biopower mm -hmm. of public mm -hmm. authorities. Um, it's still a burning issue. Do you think, I mean, uh, we're coming to an end now, but um, unfortunately, but um, when you, you know, think about the, this material in which you've immersed yourself over the years, are there any any, any ideas or insights that it, it suggests to you when you look at our current um, struggle with COVID-19? Well, I mean, I find it interesting that, again, like in the Ottoman Empire, in the sources that I've worked with, they're dealing with a disease that they don't exactly know what causes the disease and they don't actually have a cure for it, right? So I'm just referring back to, you know, what I, what I started with in the beginning saying, you know, it was a new disease, a new disease regime and people learn how to live with it. Well, when you look at the medicine of the time, what is emphasized is, you know, eat well, rest well, sleep well, you know, just, you know, good food, clean air, but also good thoughts, good emotions, because they thought that emotional hygiene was an important thing. They, you know, there was a lot of discussion about like, you know, having the wrong kind of uh, emotions, fear and anxiety and terror. Again, very common at times of epidemic, how deadly, how dangerous those were. And now I think recent research in psychology is telling us, you know, how <laughs> that can be bad. So, but I mean, I think I see this as a very prominent theme, right, in the uh, pre-modern medical texts. And again, not in the only Ottoman Empire. I think this is more or less the same um, everywhere uh, before the pre-modern, I mean, uh, before the modern period. So, you know, eat well, rest well, you know, just stay in a good frame of mind, good thoughts. And this was important for healing. And because your body will do the healing and just kind of trying to give your body a chance to recover from illness and developing, you know, immunity from it. If, if there is one, we'll see. Uh, but, uh, but I think this is, you know, in a way, this is a humbling experience for us in the 21st century that we don't exactly know. I mean, we know what the virus is, but, you know, we don't have a cure. We don't have the, the magic va vaccine yet. So we have to rely on our body's, you know, ability to deal with it. I mean, that's, of course, I'm talking about mild cases, but, you know, that can be 
that can take place out of the medical, um, you know, modern biomedicine that just, you know, I think pre-modern medicine comes into play here as a source of inspiration. Nuket, Vadaluk, I think we've um, we've come to the end of our time now, and I think that that, that advice, eat well, rest well, have yeah. good thoughts, is so good. We can't, can't possibly end on any, any other note but that. Okay. Uh, and, and of course, it remains just to thank you very much for sharing thank your you. fascinating thoughts and insights about the Ottoman encounter with disease in the early modern period. Thank you so much. Thank you.